Our story begins with Banshee having returned to the mansion and finding things aren't as they seem. He journeys through various parts of the mansion, interacting with multiple X-Men and realizing they aren't acting normal. He's right for his concern. The X-Men have been abducted by the Phalanx. Banshee sets Sabretooth and Emma Frost free as they rescue Jubilee and they flee the mansion. They discover that the Phalanx is targeting new mutants and they are able to save Sink. However, Husk, Blink, Mundo, and Monet are not so fortunate. After learning the whereabouts of the captured newer mutants, Banshee, Emma Frost, Jubilee, Sink, and surprisingly Sabretooth mount a rescue attempt. The new mutants, with the help of Banshee and his team, attempt to fight back against the phalanx known as Harvest. Terrified the entire time, Blink musters courage from witnessing Banshee's sacrificial attempt at saving them. As the courage grows within her, she takes the fight to Harvest. But does she survive? This is Marvel Mythos. Hey, hey, namaste, my fellow Marvelous Nerds. We are the Marvel Mythos Podcast. This is Phalanx Covenant. We're going to be talking all three parts of the Phalanx Covenant, including Generation Next, Life Signs, and Final Sanction. We're going to be talking Uncanny X-Men 316 and 317, X-Men 36 to 37, X-Factor 106, X-Force 38, Excalibur 82, Wolverine 85, and Cable number 16. It's a whole lot going on. But uh, I promise you, we're going we're gonna to do our best here to get through all this in an understandable manner. I am joined today by Trent Seeley, who um, I've become a good friend of through social media over the past probably six months. Um, so he has been a fan of the show, specifically the X-Men episodes. So I'm really excited to have him on. He's a free, freelance writer who's actually done some articles on some popular websites regarding X-Men content. So Trent, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, namaste, Brian. Happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, and where can they find you on social media? Uh, the best place to find me would be instatrent at uh, twitter.com. Uh, I actually had that before Instagram was a thing, uh, but uh, it's the most instant way that you can find my content. And uh, there's links to my website and my most recent articles there. That's pretty awesome that your handle is InstaTrent uh, on Twitter because that's that's like I know somebody who has a, a pig and she named it Dog and it's kind of like that in my mind. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so uh, we're gonna we're gonna go kind of in order for the most part about uh, with this story, and it kind of starts with Generation Next, which is in Uncanny X Men and in X Men, and I I know um, so. There's some people, and, and rightly so, uh, that basically says as far as the Phalanx Covenant story itself goes, this one really only seems to serve as a springboard for the Generation Next series, or Generation X series that was coming out of this. And I, I don't disagree, but what I did like in this is it's very Banshee-focused, and I, lo I love Banshee, and he hasn't been around in, uh, that much in the X-Men stuff that we've been reading so far. And uh, to have him back as the focus was great. And he he more or less teams up with Emma Frost and Sabretooth and Jubilee. And then, uh, is it Sink? Is that the yep the Generation X character? Yep. Uh, and I mean, Sink, and they, before Sink, it's Jubilee. But um, certainly when they get on the road and they start grabbing uh, some of the new mutants, there's, there's Sink, um, also known as uh, Everett, I believe, uh, and uh, M. Bonet, um, who has kind of gone in and out of continuity as of late 
and uh, uh, the rest of the Generation X crew. So um, Paige Guthrie, who is Husk, and uh, am I, I think I'm missing someone, aren't I? Blink. Blink. That's right. Yep. Yep. So they, uh, so these Generation X characters have been abducted by the Phalanx, and Banshee and his little crew of four or five track them down to save them. And uh, save them, they do, but at a great cost, unfortunately. Uh, but um, that's that's the the idea of this story in a nutshell, and it doesn't doesn't seem to have any impact on the overall Phalanx Covenant storyline. No, it, it seems uh, very removed. And to your point, um, I also love the fact that Sean Cassidy was the kind of lead in this story. Um, I, I've never been a huge Banshee fan, but this actually kind of made me a banshee fan um he he comes off as like um striking that line of being kind of a badass but also being like a genuinely good person uh and the way he characterizes himself looking back on his experience as as a villain as an fbi agent as an x-man and now kind of as uh an aimless person looking for that next opportunity to maybe guide young mutants uh it's a great lead-in to generation x yeah it, it really does a great job of establishing why this what many might have considered a random X-Men character to be the leader of Generation X. But like, like I was saying, it, it does a great job of establishing why he should be and also bringing him back into the X-Men fold. Like uh, he'd been kind of glued to Moira McTaggart. So it, whatever was going on with Moira was kind of when Banshee would be around, it seemed like. And it's nice to have a setup here where he can be removed from that relationship and have his own thing going on. And I love the the banter that he has with Emma Frost throughout this. So he, he makes several comments to her that she just, she ain't having it. Um, but yeah, I, I did love their dynamic between this. And I think that does a great job of setting up Generation X as well, since I think she's uh, also the like the headmistress or what, whatever for that, right? Isn't she? Uh, yeah, she is. And it, it's interesting because some of the characters that they assembled Generation X out of, uh, outside of the, the newer young mutants that have been uh, added to the fold of this event, um, they kind of became obsolete in a sense with the current X-Men line. Uh, Banshee, the last time we saw him, his jaw was broken by uh, Gambit, and he had kind of been out of play. Uh, obviously, Emma Frost was in a coma, and most recently, she had taken over uh, Bobby's body and introduced the spiky uh, Joe Madureira Iceman that everyone has come to really love and appreciate. Uh, and Jubilee, to her own right, she was just more or less a sidekick to Logan at the time. And Logan had kind of gone off and done his own thing since the uh, wedding of Scott and Jean Grey. So so uh, having them all kind of come together and then find these new mutants, obviously it was the springboard that they wanted for Generation X. Uh, but uh, what's really interesting is that even if you don't read Life Signs and you don't read Final Sanctum, this kind of holds up in its own right. Oh, yeah, it's definitely uh, standalone-ish. And that's why I think... Uh, the argument about it being, um, I think you used the word tertiary in a different conversation that you and I had. And I think um, the fact that it is so standalone just, you know, further proves that point because I, I honestly read it and was, I remember reading it, you know, 24, 25 years ago and I didn't read, you know, part 
two or part three, and I felt like I kind of knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it's so, it's funny because if you read Life Signs and uh, Final Sanction, they keep referring to um, kind of the generation next, or they call them the next generation throughout this book, um, as being like they're experimenting the uh, merging of the phalanx with young mutants. Like they're choosing these new kids from the mansion system that have been identified by the phalanx as the next generation as like their test subjects to try and merge phalanx with mutant DNA, which uh, with the exception of Doug Locke, if you can even call that an exception, just doesn't work. Um, so it kind of doesn't seem viable in the other uh, issues in, in Cable and Wolverine and certainly in um, in the remainder of Life Signs, so in Excalibur and X-Force and uh, X-Factor. Uh, it just doesn't really make sense that the Phalanx would go after these random young mutants in order to just test and see how, how to merge the two types of organisms. But it doesn't stop Generation Next from being a really good story in its own right. Yeah, totally agree there. And to your point, um, the Phalanx already has the X-Men. So what what is the true purpose in getting the young the younger mutants i don't understand why they would be like you said after the younger selling comics (laughs) selling comics is the true purpose (laughs) okay i mean in that sense then it makes perfect sense and you know they're like hey we want to we want to launch another x title because we don't have enough of those going on right now in the 90s so let's do that Mm -hmm. um i do do, so i wonder I wonder what uh, Scott Lobdell was kind of thinking there. Like, I know I've I've read interviews with him where he's mentioned that he doesn't ever like revisiting things that have already been done. It's more of like, let's change and do something new. And in a way, Generation X is like the next stage of New Mutants, which was very popular back in the 80s. And uh, I wonder there, like, what uh, what prompted this was, was Marvel the one who went to him and said, Hey, we want to do this. Or I wonder if Scott Lobdell was like, Hey, I have this idea of, you know, progressing something forward uh, that that might be able to hit appeal like the new mutants did. Mm -hmm. Well, I know from my conversations with creators uh, around this, period of time in Marvel history that Bob Harris and Scott Lobdell were kind of the co-architects of every major event that was happening in the lead up to uh, Age of Apocalypse. So uh, Phalanx Covenant being one of them, um, obviously he was keen to to take some characters that maybe had a bit of dust on them and do something different. And I think that's a great thing because not only is Generation X a fantastic book, both from a, a writing perspective and an art perspective, uh, certainly if you're a fan of Chris uh, Bacialo, you would, you would love that book uh but i what i think is interesting is that uh, it succeeds almost because scott lobdell is finally pulling away from trying to pretend that he's chris claremont uh, which for for a good chunk of the 90s, uh, the kind of overwrought narration that he would insert in the books that he was writing kind of stole how well he captured the voices of so many characters oh that's an excellent point i i do recall uh reading when we first started this this podcast thinking wow um, they, the, the two running with X-Men and Uncanny at the time, which would be him and, um, Nicieza, uh, I think I'm saying that mar- most, mostly correct. Um, but, uh, those two felt very Claremont-esque in the descriptions that they would use throughout the issue instead of kind of letting their own take on it or their own characterizations, uh, come through. 
Uh, so that's a that's an excellent point. This one did feel a little less that way, and uh, in in a lot of ways that I didn't even notice. So good call out. Yeah. And uh, what I think is really interesting, especially about uh, these first few issues, I mean, it's in uh, X-Men Volume 2 and Uncanny X-Men, but to your previous point, this is known as the event that didn't feature the X-Men. It's an X-Men event, and all of the X-Men have been captured. Um, So you you just have supporting teams that are stepping into the fray. Yeah, and I... I Reading it now, I absolutely love that. I think that was a bold move. I think it was a brilliant move. I think it uh, it paid off. Of, uh, yeah, I think it paid off for him in my eyes because I thought this, not to get too spoilery in like how I feel about the other two, but this was my favorite of the three parts. Um, Mine as well. And um, what what I thought was really interesting, especially with that first issue of uh, Phalanx Covenant Generation Next Part 1, is that you see Banshee going through the mansion as we get introduced to Monet elsewhere. And he's having these interactions with the X-Men and it looks like the X-Men, but the way that like Storm and Archangel in, in particular are acting seem really off in a way that doesn't come off as though the author doesn't understand the characters. It seems like intentionally off. Um, and it, it really does lead in well to the reveal that the Phalanx has the ability to shapeshift into any character or any creature that they want to, although they have certain tells about them. Yeah, I, that's it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I was thinking that as reading this, like, oh, uh, Storm's like much more, I guess, jovial or um, smiley, or in the way that she kind of communicates with Banshee, trying to get him out of the scenario that they're in. So like Banshee's there, and um, the Storm, and I can't remember the other one, but there, I think it was Iceman operating on Emma Frost and causing Emma a great deal of pain. And Banshee's like, I don't know if this is the way that we need to handle this situation. And then Storm's like, no, 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 Xavier told us to do this, whatever. And then she is escorting him out and she ends up locking him out. But that during that conversation, she has a, a much different personality about her where she's very smiley. And she, I think she even like grabs his arm to hold him, walk him out and everything. And then um, with Warren, he sees Warren and Warren like snaps on him because um, Banshee has a communication with Cyclops and Jean Grey who have just returned from the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix and they've learned this information about the legacy virus and they're trying to figure out where Charles Xavier is because they want to give them him the news and so Banshee answers the comm and he's like hey he's at Muir Island I think um, and then uh, Warren shows up and Warren freaks out like who did you talk to what did you tell them you're not yeah. even an X-Man what yeah. are you doing Le- leave it's- it leave it to the real X-Men all, all of the characters in general like they're either making jokes that don't make sense like at one point Hank uh, at one like he, he mentions the ability to uh, talk to someone on the intercom in the morning or something along those lines and I, at first Banshee takes it as a joke but it's another tell that these people just aren't who they are saying that they are uh, and it all kind of concludes when he runs into Rogue just outside of Sabretooth's quarters. And uh, we see probably one of the best pages in the book where he absolutely obliterates her with his scream. Um, and I never expected to see uh, an X-Men obliterated in such a way. But because it is the phalanx and they have this almost uh, particulate design to them, like it's very mechanical, but um, it's very in pieces almost. It, it just looks spectacular. It, it is. I, I think the art on this was why I fell in love with Matarera way back in the day. 
Um, I remember him being one of my favorite artists ever, uh, him and Jim Lee. Uh, I think like everybody in the 90s loved Jim Lee, and, and most people still do. I do. Um, but uh, <laughs> like I think that's common, right? But no, uh, I, I fell in love with Matarera around this time uh, reading these, and I remember... So this is the funny thing. Like I was a, I was pretty young back then. I was like 10, um, 10 or 11. And most of the reason that I read comics was because of my love for, uh, Gambit and or Rogue from the X-Men cartoon. So a lot of times if I was just not really in the mood to read the story, I would only read like the Gambit parts. And I remember like the first time I read this as a kid, I remember being so confused over that whole scene with Gambit and Bishop and, um, Banshee over the, what they were like disassembling or whatever. Uh, and I'm like, what is happening? This is so strange. But then eventually I read the whole thing and it made more sense, obviously. But, uh, I think, I think overall from this entire thing, and this is like, this isn't a good sign that this is the first thing we're talking about as far as the rest of the stuff we're going to, we're going to discuss. But I think this particular issue, that first one is probably my favorite from the entire reading. Um, I loved the build, like that whole like Banshee shows up and then you're slowly seeing these like clues or hints that everything's not right. And it feels like a horror film almost in a way. And then he kind of like starts to realize it. So he goes uh, near the danger room because I guess uh, Beast has this Heather Locklear holographic program that he's been dying for Banshee to try out. That kind of creeps me out in ways that I I, I don't want to get into. But uh, he goes to this danger room and it says uh, that it's occupied and you can't get in right now and that Jubilee is the one in there. And then he's like, well, this is kind of confusing because you're supposed to have supervision. She's young. She's a kid. Right. And so he says like, hey, you know, computer, like who is in there with her? And then there's like no life signs other than Jubilee basically is what it says. And so as he starts to piece these clues together, he ends up, you know, kind of figuring it out. And then he's like, uh, computer, um, let me know where, you know, Gambit is. Gambit is not on site. Let me know where Storm is. Storm is not on site. And then he's, and then, uh, he finally just says, computer, who, who is on site? And then it's like, no life signs on site. And he's like, holy crap, what is going on? Yeah. Um, I, I guess the one thing that kind of throws you off, though, when you look back in hindsight is, uh, like we learn in, in Final, Sanctum, uh, Final Sanction, rather, that um, telepaths have a distinct ability to, like, uh, destroy uh, the phalanx through the astral plane, right? Um, and because they share this um, sort of hive mind connection, how they communicate with each other, you'd think that they would avoid any risks and just kind of take Emma Frost out while she's unable to really defend herself. But uh, I guess just because we are staging this for Generation X, you have just Banshee, Emma, uh, and Sabretooth and Jubilee in the mansion and everyone else's phalanx, right? That's a that's an excellent point uh, about Emma. And I think... I wonder, I wonder if because she was um, already captured there at the um, Xavier Institute, I wonder if the intent or the the thought process behind it was let's try and figure out why they're able to do that against us, and maybe we can stop it. But at the same time, they've already captured Psylocke, so they already have a test subject to do that with. So yeah, I don't really understand why they would have. Man, there seems to be not a whole lot of communication going on between um, 
between these guys and the guys writing X Factor and X Force and, and the rest of them. Perhaps no communication at all. It's kind of hard to, to say in hindsight. <laughs> uh, but but I think the the interesting thing here is like, especially as we go into the next couple issues, like the, the team that we're assembling of adults, like Sabretooth and Banshee and uh, Emma Frost, they are so uh, morally gray relative to the rest of the X-Men. And, um, like your, your first instinct is like, why would you allow Sabretooth to, to run out and just kind of cut loose and do his thing? But that's exactly what Banshee encourages. And, uh, we even see Sabretooth return towards the end of this, uh, this, uh, piece of the event. Uh, and it, it almost made everything that much more worthwhile to me. Yeah. I, I can get on board with that a lot. And I think what was uh, fun for uh, Banshee, I think, in this is being able to tell Sabretooth to let loose because they're mechanical or machine-like. Um, so he's he figures they don't have a soul or whatever. And he's like, just go ahead, just, you know, have fun, Sabretooth. Um, let your hair down. And, uh, and they just kind of go off on it. And there's some really amazing imagery throughout this. And um, <clears throat> Hubert and Metarera just do a fantastic job, I think, in both X-Men and Uncanny, uh, just depicting all the different um, phalanx battles um, that we that we get. And I and I know we haven't um, talked much about them yet because we've been so like big on Banshee and Emma Frost so far. Uh, but what what was your initial impression of these younger mutants? Uh, well, I always liked Jubilee. I, there was never a time that I didn't enjoy Jubilee, with the exception of watching the animated series, where she <laughs> she kind of isn't exactly the Jubilee that we know and love. Um, uh, but at the same time, like it, it's interesting that Phalanx Covenant uh, starts off showing uh, M of all of the, the new recruits, because she starts off as kind of a mute character to, for, for one reason or another, whether it was uh, trauma or what. Uh, but she doesn't actually start speaking up until like the third issue, I believe. Um, and at that point, there's an additional uh, member of this group of young mutants named Gregor. And I don't know what your thoughts were when you were reading, but the whole time I was eyeing him and thinking, oh, I know what you are. I know what's about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was sitting there. Yeah. So I didn't. Uh, yeah, I was reading it and I'm like, I don't recognize him from anything. Generation X. So I'm pretty sure that's not real. Um, yeah. So it, it was. A little more tele televised or um, telegraphed than uh, than I would have liked to have seen. Yeah, and and the, the, I think the best part about it too is that uh, when it's revealed that they have kind of a, a traitor in their midst, if you want to use that, um, it's it's M who is the one who sticks up and like basically gets them out of that situation and reveals Gregor as a member of the Phalanx. And I'm realizing now as we're talking about this that uh, the Phalanx we haven't really kind of gone into detail as to what it is. And to be fair, Generation Next isn't really concerned about what the Phalanx is. Um, <laughs> Um, the phalanx is much more well described in life signs and even uh, final uh, sanction. But unless you have been reading some of the earlier issues of Uncanny X-Men, uh, you probably have no idea what you're getting into or who these villains are. I would I would argue even if you were reading the earlier issues of Uncanny, you probably don't really know who they are because there's not a whole lot um, as far as you know their motivations or where they come from or who they are that's that's given. And uh, to your point, in Life Signs um, and Final Sanction, you get a lot, especially 
I want to say in life signs, you probably get a little bit more just because it has Doug Locke involved. Yeah, perhaps um, too much even. <laughs> yeah, no, there was like a whole lot of exposition on there. Um, and then in uh, the final sanction one, I think you get more of the motivation behind like why certain people have been being attacked and what's going on there. So yeah, in, in Generation Next, it's more of like, um, yeah, we got attacked by the phalanx. It's cool though. We survived. Well, some of them. Uh. <laughs> so, so to that point, we, we have this uh, new generation of mutants. There is um, there's Monet, there's uh, Sync, there is Skin, there is uh, Jubilee, obviously, who has been with the team since the Australia era. Um, you have Husk, who has kind of been in the periphery of the Guthrie family, uh, and um, Blink, finally, right? Yeah, yeah, Blink. Um, um, so I totally forgot, that, like, sorry totally forgot is not the right word i knew that she had been introduced before age of apocalypse but for the longest time i had forgotten that but then like of recent years when i've dove back into x-men like i knew she existed before then but she passed away or what whatever well and and i i to be fair i think a lot of writers are more familiar even today with like the age of apocalypse blink because that's the same blink that we get in exiles right yeah, it is. It's because that's where she really made her stamp uh, as a as an excellent character, and uh, especially from a design standpoint, her look was phenomenal in AOA. And uh, so, reading through this, I'm like, oh, this is where she doesn't make it. Okay, which is, <laughs> um, so I think from so I think Banshee was my my standout character throughout the whole event, but I think Blink was probably my second. Um, I really enjoyed that. So in, uh, I think it was the second part of this. So uncanny three sixteen. um, I think that's where we meet her and she's really, really afraid of everything that's going on. Like she has the most fear and probably the most realistic reaction, uh, from the generation X mutants that have been kidnapped because, like she, she gets it. Like this is, this is an actual kidnapping and she's thinking she's not going to make it. And like Husk probably would fit with the, her background, like the way that she reacts. Cause it's more of like, a, yeah, my brother, he's an X man. This is kind of what happens They'll, you know, they might save us. Um, another, another day in, <laughs> in the country, you know, <laughs> these things just happen to us, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think I, I love the way that blink is shown in this is like, really having this this strong sense of fear and trying to to overcome it in a way because she's seeing all these other kids have much more courage than she does, especially M. And then at the end, uh, not to jump too far ahead, but we can kind of bounce around because we're talking characters. But at the end, Banshee is actually in a scenario where he's going to sacrifice himself so that the rest of the mutants can get away from this phalanx uh, that they're fighting. His name was Harvest. Harvester, I think? Harvest. Um, Harvest. And, and we saw him uh, earlier in Uncanny. He is one of the, I believe, friends of humanity who joined the phalanx willingly uh, because he has a wife and child, or at least he did before he joined the phalanx because when you join the phalanx, you essentially die and you just become a part of their body mass uh, and a bit more organic matter for them to you know transmode into uh guns and knives and anything else they can use to kill you right yeah it makes perfect sense and so uh so they're fighting this this harvest guy um and banshee is like i said gonna sacrifice himself for the the group and blink looks back and she sees banshee willing to do this and she 
she thinks, wow, now that is a very courageous hero. And it gives her the courage to actually stand up and fight. And she knows that what she can do is actually get rid of the harvest, uh, this harvest character, save Banshee and also save all of the other mutants um, that are, that are being attacked. And so she gives herself, which now that I'm thinking through it, it's a little bit of a different take on it. So it's not a complete parallel, but it is similar to Thunderbird giving a, you know, passing away or dying in, um, uh, was it their second mission? I believe. Oh, I, I would disagree with that just because I think Thunderbird was motivated more by uh, bravado and uh, hatred towards the white man than he was <laughs> than, than, than he was trying to self-sacrificially self-sacrifice himself as is the X-Men do. Um, but that being said, um, what I thought was really interesting is the time taken to, to characterize uh, the first moment that Blink used her powers because it, it talks about how Claire Ferguson... Uh, remembers the first time she used her powers, as all mutants do, but unlike all mutants, she's terrified of it. And I think that's why she feels so terrified throughout this these books, because um, the, the few times she has used her powers, it has been tragedy. Uh, so she sees herself likely more like a human uh, who can't really lean on her mutant abilities, whereas Husk can rip her skin off, as as is revealed for the first time in this series when she has that transmode virus on her external skin. Uh, Monet, of course, is perfect. <laughs> she could do everything. Uh, sync, sync. we see uh, for the first time actually syncing up with other mutants, not only um, using Banshee's powers to great effect, but also demonstrating, as uh, Emma Frost points out, that Jubilee has a huge punch that she's packing that she's also too afraid to use. Uh, and it's just interesting to see that she's kind of holding herself back until that moment where she knows I can save us, but I won't be able to save myself. And then to, to witness how it happens. So like the, the artistic choice of showing like the slices through oh, yeah. harvest. It's like a, it was, a snipping effect across the page itself. Yes. Oh, it was beautiful. Uh, uh, beautiful. Um, so I think like I was saying uh, that I think blink is probably my number two favorite story as far as, um, where they start versus where they end, uh, in this story. Uh, sorry. I hate to say that. I love that she died. I mean like the way that she handled herself, um, the growth that she kind of experienced in a very short period of time. Um, so I think that that spoke to me. Uh, was there uh, was there a different standout for you? Well, I, again, um, Banshee, I thought, was spectacular throughout this, in part because he, he didn't necessarily approach this the way any X-Men would. He's He's gone through things in his life that have made him look at things in kind of a stark way. So um, he does lean on his more morally ambiguous sides during this event. But outside of him, I would say Emma Frost, uh, in part because we see those uh, seeds of what's to come in Generation Next, where Emma is not only a gifted mentor and someone who genuinely cares for students, she is also just a mean woman. <laughs> and she's not <laughs> afraid to show you how uh, vain she is and how much money she has. And she doesn't think very highly of you, but she puts up with you because she has to. It's like uh, we're, we're starting to dive into that like sweet spot of Emma Frost that I really appreciate. Uh, yeah, it kind of what um, probably the way that most modern readers understand her character is what we're we're getting now uh, with her because she is a little bit different here than she was in the um, classic. I think it was like late seventies, early eighties stuff where she was, um, 
Yes, when she was the White Queen and attacking the X-Men at a, on a more regular basis, specifically Kitty Pride and Storm. Um, so now we're getting into that, um, like you were saying, that type of Emma Frost that kind of fits the mold that the modern reader understands of Emma Frost. And uh, man, she just has some great lines against Banshee on this, like um, when they're infiltrating. So we haven't even talked about the fact they infiltrate a shield safe house to get uh, to try and track down the phalanx. And so they do this. And um, as Banshee's like peering over and they're think, you know, they're having this conversation in their mind and he's peering over her shoulder as she's looking up on this computer screen where this energy surge or whatever it was uh, may be. And he makes the this statement in his head like, oh, yes, this is going to help me. And she's like us I'm like, hey, dude, like, don't don't overlook the fact that I'm helping you here. I'm not doing it just because, you know, you held me captive and like you are this um, that I'm your prisoner or anything like that. It's more of like a dude, like chill out. I'm on your side. We're doing this together. And then uh, some of the stuff that she makes comments of when they were at her home uh, or Frost Enterprise or wherever it was. I think it was her mansion out on San Francisco. Right? Yeah, it was this huge space. And of course, all the, the young kids are reflecting on how massive it is. And she's making light of how tiny it is. <laughs> uh, spoken like a like a Hollywood diva, right? And, uh, and then uh, she makes some comment like to Banshee, like... Um, I don't remember how she said it, but basically like there are many ways that I can impress you. <laughs> it was I'm very, sure. very sexually tinged. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and I did send you one panel at one point uh, and it was kind of, it was interesting because it was uh, Jubilee who is uh, that classic, like uh, rose colored uh, kid on the X-Men team has a very distinct perspective on how heroism is. So she's taking every punch that she can at Emma Frost. And at one point she says, uh, Hmm, good plan. No wonder your Hellions are toast. Now, obviously, the thing that last happened to Emma uh, and that she's been uh, mentally recovering from is the decimation of her last group of students, the Hellions. So I thought that that was pretty pretty cold of jubes, to be honest. <laughs> that was the most brutal burn that she could have possibly thrown out. And it, I think, in a way... Um, it shows the disdain that uh, she and most of the X-Men have towards Emma while also reminding the reader that Emma may have pure motivations in helping these young mutants because she has sincere and deep regret over the fact that her young mutants known as the Hellions were actually, you know, um, eliminated, like literally killed uh, while she was in the coma. So I think it's a, a nice little... It's a it's a very brutal line, and it, I wouldn't have necessarily expected it from Jubilee. Would have probably seen it from Banshee, but um, yeah, Jubilee saying it, uh, wow, harsh, <laughs> very. Um, so, okay, uh, any other topics from Life's or uh, Generation X next that uh, you want to cover before we move into Life Signs? Yeah, I guess there are a few things. I mean, uh, one thing that I found interesting that there there were instances where the phalanx was kind of reforming itself as like uh, like giant birds or creatures or some of the artwork that was going on was so fantastical in terms of the enemy design. Uh, and I, it, it feels like the artist kind of cut loose. Now, in the past, when we saw the phalanx, um, it kind of had that uh, almost tinge of warlock to it, but it never had this like detailed visceral mechanic look to it and um like joe mad's art is phenomenal it really shines on this uh this particular 
uh, storyline. And I, and now that we're like processing this and thinking through this, I'm kind of like, man, it'd be really awesome for a video game to have the phalanx as the villain. Well, it, I think um, the Genesis Clone Wars 2 game, that, that did have the, the phalanx as the villain, I think. Now that you're saying that, I think you're right. And it's been a long time since I've played it. So let me rephrase what I said a second ago and say <laughs> a modern game to have the phalanx as the villain instead of always having Thanos or, um, you know, Apocalypse or whatever. Um, yeah. And outside of that, I mean, like there are a few standout moments from the later issues before uh, Blink's and Timely End that really stuck out to me. Like uh, uh, Emma Frost, when she's touring the the ship that all the kids are imprisoned on because they, they determine that all the kids and Harvest are on this tanker out in the bay. Um, it, like the Phalanx has even started uh, using the transmode virus to inoculate rats into their collective. Uh, and they look disgusting. Oh, man, it is. <laughs> horrendous to see that um i and honestly i'm gonna have to throw it up on the twitter and instagram account now because it's it's really awesome um as far as visually speaking it's disgusting but it's fantastic work. yeah and, and outside of that a few other moments that stuck out uh obviously saber return because when he does vanish uh because un- at the end of one fight banshee realizes that the the metal gear that was kind of keeping saber subdued um was gone uh, and his wrist control for that gear had been damaged in the fight, probably by Sabretooth. So when he shows up later on the tanker and saves the kids at this moment where it looks like Harvest is going to decimate everything, I was kind of floored. And it kind of spoke to maybe a little bit of moral compass development in his time with Xavier at the mansion, I guess. Yeah, it it, it definitely kind of gives you that impression that something has changed in him for him to have actually shown up when he had become free. And it also does a a really good job kind of um, bait and switching the reader where you're expecting like Banshee or Emma to show up and save the day. And it's Sabretooth at this moment where the mutants are, the young mutants are about to, you know, meet their untimely demise at the hands of Harvest. So uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great, um, great moment having Sabretooth be the one to come back. And like you said, it really does show that, or at least we're given the impression that his time with Xavier and his treatments with Gene and Betsy and Charles have been paying off. Mm-hmm. Now, as like a like a an older reader of the X Men who kind of revisited these books in large part after they came out, I knew um, that uh, Paige's uh, mutation was to pull her skin off and reveal a new form underneath. It's one of my favorite mutations, actually. But we see that on uh, essentially like the first or second page of uh, the first issue of Generation X, but in this series, although we knew that Paige was a mutant for a while, it's the first time we see her use that ability. Uh, and at the and we we first see Sabretooth actually claw at her because she has the transmode virus, and she's the only one who's been infected by it. I thought she was going to die, um, so I was really uh, amazed to see this metal form underneath. I, I was wondering what your thoughts were. Uh, I thought it was a brilliant way to show what she can do. So we'd seen. Um, like I think it was through, uh, I want to say it was either an issue and a half or two full issues where you kind of see the virus on her. Um, and then it starts to kind of grow a little bit and you're kind of like, what is happening? Like it, you know, and then, uh, as Sabretooth slashes her, 
and uh, it's revealed what her ability actually is. I thought that was fantastic. Like, I think that was a, a great move because you're set up leading up to this, like, how is she going to survive this if she is going to survive this? Because she's already at least showing signs of infection. And, um, and then all of a sudden at the end, you get the, not the end, but near the end, you get the reveal that, you know, she can shed her skin. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was a brilliant move. I love the way that it looks. And I, I honestly was trying to figure out was Sabretooth doing that because he knew like was there some kind of like I think I think he would have had to because like like the way he is able to smell and use his senses I mean he had to know that maybe something was off with her skin I that's that's the way I rationalized it I don't know if (laughs) if I'm right but that it kind of came off as like an intentional move to me like maybe, uh, yeah, maybe something um, with his senses indicated that there was something with her skin or even, I mean, he's been fighting these phalanx for a while, so he knows where their scent would be when they're infected humans or whatever. And so maybe he could just tell that there was like two distinct scents coming off of her um, and know that uh, it had not actually infected her. And maybe he thought he was just swiping the daggone thing off of her. Um, but yeah, interesting. Now I'm like thinking through that, I'm like what? What did Sabretooth know at that point? (laughs) So, okay. Anything else before we shift gears? Uh, No. I mean, outside of saying that, I think um, as far as introductions go to new series, I think um, this chunk of Phalanx Covenant, which is almost certainly the whole reason why Phalanx Covenant exists in the first place, outside of the popularity of the Borg on Star Trek TNG, um, I, I would say that this is kind of the best sweet spot of it, um, which isn't to say that life science is, is awful, um, but it's not quite as good, I would say. Uh, yeah, I think, um, I think you kind of see a, a I want to, I'm trying to think of the right word as the story progresses, it kind of gets weaker and weaker in quality. Um, so whereas like Generation Next was kind of the peak of it, it starts out at the peak and then it just kind of goes downhill. And I don't mean that it goes downhill like where it just becomes utter crap as um, you get into Life Signs and Final Sanction. It's more that it's just not near the quality that we have with Generation Next. And maybe that's because they turned all of the issues into freaking like, what were they? Um, one and a half times the size or two times size, normal issues. Like there was a lot of stuff inside of them. It was um, a lot, it was a lot to read. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to read. It's a lot to and read. The, and the bad thing is, is like, as I'm reading it, I'm like, God, we really didn't need so much of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so in life signs, what you get is Excalibur, X factor and X force, um, joining or meeting uh xavier um apparently the phalanx has taken over mirror island and xavier's gone into hiding and he's assembling this team and they've actually captured doug lock or doug lock has come with them willingly or no no no, he helped them escape he he was with um excalibur because he was discovered in a previous issue um, and they've all gone to this monastery in, in France, uh, which was a former uh, location of Magneto's acolytes. Uh, 
and he's in the basement. They're all kind of having this powwow together. Obviously, uh, Strong Guy is having the same friction with X-Force that he always does. <laughs> uh, Rain and Cannonball are having the, the same kind of conversations that they always do when they get together <laughs> a, as adults. Um, but probably the best part of this series is when it chooses to focus on uh, Rain and Cannonball and Doug Locke because they share that New Mutants connection. They're all present when Doug unfortunately passed away. Um, and even though it's clear that this being is phalanx to some extent, the fact that it bears such a striking resemblance in both uh, mannerism and demeanor uh, to Doug, uh, it's really throwing everyone for a loop. That's an excellent point. And I hadn't thought of this until you were just saying that. Um, but we get a huge focus on the New Mutants connection in this, which is very interesting given that Generation Next preceded this and is, you know, like kind of in spirit, the second coming of the New Mutants. So, um, but yeah, so throughout this one, um, Doug Locke has uh, helped them escape and they have detained him because he has this similarity with the Phalanx and, um, or this connection with the phalanx. So they've detained him because they're not sure if they can trust him because he's not really Doug Ramsey anymore. And he's not really warlock. He's some weird amalgam of the two of them. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, he, and, he, I, I think later on it's right kind as this is, this is warlock and it's more of like, um, a symbol to his like love or appreciation, uh, towards Doug Ramsey. But at the time, like the threat against the world is the phalanx against the entire world. And you have this character who's been dead for years <laughs> and he is clearly phalanx, uh, but he, <laughs> but he's coming off as a really friendly guy. So I, you can understand why everyone Xavier included is a bit on edge (laughs) he's like oh man he's he he looks like our old friend most of the time but every now and then he goes a little you know robotic looking it's fine yeah it's fine and doug probably the best thing about it too is that um the the writer really plays into the fact that both uh cannonball and rain are wrong about this character because there's a time where rain is like oh this looks like doug and i'm so thankful to see him and you can tell that this is in part because of the regret that she has at how he died which was trying to save her Uh, and he he died in a really sad excuse me if this sounds harsh but pathetic way as well as far (laughs) as far as an x-men character he just he ran into a fight that he shouldn't have been in and then he healed over um and it was heartbreaking for the whole team so this is the first time they're seeing doug quote unquote and um you know Obviously, Cannonball's first instinct after spending so much time with Cable is to be cynical and skeptical of everything. Uh, And Rain Sinclair, who is still feeling so much remorse over Doug's death, just wants to accept this as Doug, and they are both wrong. Yeah, that's... uh, Yeah, and and so she's struggling because, you know, um, he... he um, sacri- he sacrificed himself for her, right? Is that right? And then Cannonball was the leader of the team at the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so they both, yeah. So they both have this like strange, not strange, but they both have this guilt for Doug's death and they're coming at this scenario oppositely. Like rain is very much like it's him. You know, we can redeem the way that we've, tr- you know, this whole scenario has happened and like we can get forgiveness and that kind of thing. And cannonball is like, Nope, Nope. I'm sticking with my guilt. It was my fault all along. This isn't really Doug. I can't handle that. And then uh, to your point a minute ago, they are both wrong. Um, 
through through at the end of this. And I, I like that. So that's the thing with this one, the Forge, Wolfsbane, Cannonball um, stuff, and Douglock. That stuff was really interesting. It's really me. great. Was, yeah. The, yeah. I, and and we, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, like Wolfsbane and Cannonball and Douglock. But to your point, Forge in this in this Life Sign series, he really shines in a, in a bunch of different ways. So for the first time ever, uh, because he allows Xavier to kind of link consciousnesses with him um, and Forge is at a distance at this point, Xavier sees things that like the way that Forge does. And the way that Forge sees things is as this confluence of organic and inorganic matter all around him. He sees the mechanics of how life works. And because he is a maker in nature, like he he looks at new creations like the phalanx as beings of beauty almost um and they play on that later on in this uh chunk of the event by having the phalanx force him to work on like a hatchery of new phalanx legionnaires um and he can't stop himself his mutant power is overriding his own humanity uh he just can't stop himself from trying to make them hatch more efficiently because he sees these techno organic beings as so beautiful yes so okay so now we'll kind of like now that you brought that up we'll kind of summarize like what the motivation is here or what's going on so the phalanx has been assimilating humans to create this gigantic spire, right? Yes, right? A, a babble spire. Yes, a babble spire to reach out to the heavens for the quote-unquote father of warlock more i think right um well yeah i guess it's it's hard because there have been retcons since and we've we've since learned that there is like a pure phalanx in space uh and these beings they they're able to corrupt in the same way that the phalanx on earth are but the phalanx on earth um that's the result of uh humans and Stephen lang taking like the ashes of warlock and trying to create a techno organic sentinel um so they're not really uh those kind of phalanx. Uh, I guess the implication here is that they're they're reaching out to the heavens uh, so that they can spread phalanx throughout the universe and kind of start with Earth. Okay, got it. And then what we have is another member of the phalanx. Um, he kind of acts as the harvest for uh, for this book. This. Yeah. Um, so, uh, question: How do you pronounce his name? Um, I, I tried pronouncing it about five different ways. Um, and I, like, I just thought of him as the red phalanx for a while. He, he, he almost looks like a dinosaur, like a raptor. He, he, his design is very distinct from like harvest or the phalanx that we see in uh, final sanction. Um, and it's interesting. I, I, was he the one who was corrupted as a shepherd in the fields at the beginning of the book? I believe so, yes. Okay, so it's interesting then that his character later on is not only to um, like spread the phalanx to the local town so that they can become this amorphous spire uh, reaching out to the heavens, but also that he would spend so much time cultivating this um, hatchery, this like, it, it almost looks like a garden of eggs, right? Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it's a garden of eggs, you know, that bear some resemblance to certain pods and certain things that are going on currently. <laughs> but, yes, you're but, right. <laughs> um, but aside from that, yeah, so that's a that's a great point that um, if it, if it 
if our memories are correct and he is the shepherd from the beginning, it makes perfect sense that he would have his own little flock that he's trying to nur- right. nurture. And, and it's explained that this is like his backup plan. Um, and the more I thought about this, I think like, okay, so there's an A plot and a B plot. The A plot is the Babel Spire and you see Cannonball and uh, Wolfsbane and Doug Locke uh, ascend it to try and stop the single, the, the signal from reaching out to space. And then the B plot is this hatchery where Forge is trying to cultivate this garden of techno organic eggs because he can't uh, stop himself and Kurt has to intervene to get him to pull back and embrace his humanity. And then there's almost a C plot where you have the remaining members of Excalibur and X-Factor and X-Force kind of butting heads about how relevant they are to the issue, or at least that's how I was reading (laughs) it. (laughs) They are not relevant at all. And this is what frustrates me. I hate like it is is a massive pet peeve of mine when we have events that are say 10 or 14 issues that can be done in seven or we have an event like this where the issues are double sized and they should have been normal sized there's so much unnecessary filler in this yeah with with these you know these characters that have nothing to do with what's going on and it's more or less just to kind of you know, give a whole bunch of exposition that we're already getting. Like, it's like, oh yeah, Xavier had this plan. Okay. Well, we already know that because they've already talked about that with these other characters that we're reading about or whatever it may have been. Um, So I found that very frustrating and made it very difficult to read, especially given the fact that like normally how I read is when the kids are in bed and my wife is like going to sleep. So I don't feel terrible for being a horrible husband and being like, no, I'm going to read comics instead of hanging out with you. Yeah. So like, when they're 37, 38 pages long and it's going on 1130 midnight at night, I'm like, oh, and I start to drift. I'm like, daggone it. Yeah, I'm like, I don't just get to the point. Like, I don't want to keep rehashing the same thing and seeing these little like Shatterstar flipping out. Like, and that, that in particular was kind of weird to me the 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 Shatterstar flipping out. And then like at one point, Strong Guy is questioning Day Tripper's uh, outfit choices and it's just like <laughs> i i'm reading this book and i'm like okay so they, they keep coming back to the fact that they have split the remaining members of these three distinct uh x-men teams or, or mutant teams i should say not all of them are affiliated with the x-men uh into like a stealth group which is led by kurt and um kitty pride uh and a a defense group i guess you would call it and the strong guys are all back at the monastery with xavier and they are uh, completely irrelevant to the story they're, they're like okay you're the other team and you get to stay here and do nothing <laughs> other than fight amongst yourselves because you're doing nothing like that's and like i'm trying to think do they do anything even at the end? No, no. You, and and Xavier never really kind of comes back into the fold outside of some kind of telepathic messages towards like Forge uh, and some of the people in the fields. I mean, really, we have this uh, detached group of mutants and none of them are susceptible to the phalanx. None of them. We, we've already established that because they have their mutant powers, the phalanx just cannot bond to them the way they can with, with humans. And these phalanx here are more concerned with this hatchery and this babble spire. So why don't we have all of the mutants here so that they can tear humans off the babble spire and destroy these effing eggs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. Oh, okay. So here's a way they could have fixed that problem. Um had a crew of phalanx actually attacking uh, Xavier. And the point being, like earlier we talked, telepaths seem to be like the thing that that can handle them, right? 
Yeah, but and, but what's weird about it is, I guess, so telepaths can handle them if they access the astral plane, and maybe that was just a reveal for the final chunk of this event. Uh, that and, and to be fair, it's one of the best parts of Final Sanction. But um, with Xavier, he had this whole, like, none of you can bring anything metal or electronic or mechanical with you because you might be phalanx, it might be phalanx, my floating chair was phalanx. So <laughs> so I feel like he just has this, like, awful memory of his beloved chair becoming phalanx. <laughs> and he wants nothing to do with the phalanx. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. Yeah, he's, he's just so frustrated by that whole scenario. Like, I mean, what? Yeah. Wow, that's a good point. I like that. Yeah, he's just really upset about his chair. Like, didn't he? Did he get that? If, and now I might be making this up, but I feel like he got that from Lalandra, right? Um, I well, and I can't remember the origins of the floating chair. I remember, um, was it Skiorski that that created the bodysuit that allowed him to walk? Um, like of the Star Jammers. I th- think so. Yeah, that right. I, I feel like if you have a floating giant um, yellow chair, that's just not something that's probably going to be built on Earth, right? So the fact that he lost his chair, like that, the biggest loss of Generation Next is definitely Blink. The biggest loss of Life Science is is Professor X's floating hover chair. <laughs> that's the the big sacrifice in this in this issue or this little part. Um, yeah. So like, okay, if if he got it from Lalandra, we're going to pretend he got it from Lalandra, then he probably would be really upset, right? I mean, like, you know. But but um, again, this is also like <laughs> the only floating, I can't even call it a wheelchair. It's the only floating chair on Earth, right? It's a hover chair, and right? He, and, he, a- and his look was defined by this this beautiful, um, like, mustard chair, right? So I, if I was him, I'd be very upset too. And it's funny because at one point, he's like meditating by himself in the monastery. He's um, sitting kind of cross-legged and uh, Strong Guy makes a joke about him not feeling the cramps in his leg or something like that. And everyone points it out as being poor taste. Uh, and I was just thinking to myself, he probably misses his chair right now. Like, he's, <laughs> he's probably trying to get over that grief. <laughs> Well, the the funny thing is I've never actually thought about the logistics of the chair, this this yellow, this mustardy uh, hover chair. But uh, so I used to work in retail and there was this rule where, you know, you had to have a certain amount of space between aisles uh, so that people could walk in. And I'm like, that hover chair was so big. Like he had to use a wheelchair when he went out in public, not just to like hide the fact he was a mutant, but... um, because it couldn't get through anything like that thing was freaking huge man oh yeah well and i guess it's also kind of weird that like he has this home which granted has been blown up like dozens of times but it was his family home and somehow the hallways were big enough for this giant floating chair (laughs) (laughs) every time the house gets renovated or rebuilt he's like we got to make the space wider yeah we got we got we got to expand the hallways of, of Westchester just so that I can get in out. Make sure all the doors can fit me, you know? Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Um, now, I, I know this is backtracking quite a bit based on a comment that you made earlier, but I had never even thought about it. Um, so they're at uh, Mont Saint-Francis, I think, is what that's how I'm going to pretend it's pronounced. Um, which you made the point was Magneto's old base for the Acolytes. I love that point, given what's to come in the X-Men comics. Um, I don't want to say too much about that, but for people who are listening to this who have actually read the comics after this, 
that is a huge little that's almost like an Easter egg or like a little, um, for not necessarily foreshadowing, but it's a little point that's made in there that, uh, would be like a signpost of things to come. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a lot of little bits inside all of life signs that really works in its favor. It's just held back by some of those filler moments where you can tell, like, we're trying to explain away why people aren't doing things right now. Like that's what, that's what's happening. (laughs) We're explaining why the, the, at that point in time, the strongest telepath in the world is not doing really anything. And then the most physical group is doing nothing while rain and, um, Sam and, um, Doug are being sucked into the spire. So to kind of give everyone an idea of what's going on there, the phalanx has actually been manipulating Doug without Doug even realizing it or Doug lock. And, um, so he's, and he, he, he tries to play it off when he realizes that, you know, Oh, here are the people that I have brought to you. I am loyal to the phalanx. And then they don't buy it at that point because they know that they had the, the, the X-Men and Xavier were right in the beginning. Doug lock was being influenced by the phalanx and he, he wasn't completely aware of it. Yeah, it was, it was, they were manipulating him behind the scenes and he had no idea. And then, uh, so they get sucked into this, this babble spire to try and, uh, I guess, continue to expand it to the heavens. And at that point, Doug has this idea that if they work together, correct me if I'm wrong, but if they work together, they'll be able to ascend to the top. And if they get to the top, then Doug Locke can destroy the thing. Yes, basically. Yeah. And, and I guess uh, like what they were planning on doing was kind of like uh, reversing the signal or, or, or changing the signals uh, direction or frequency because doing so would revert the humans uh, back to being human, I guess, which is interesting given the events that take place in, in final sanction, because uh, in that case, the humans that joined the phalanx, there was nothing left by the end of it. Um, and uh, previously with Harvest, he was just gone. You know, so this was the first indication that members of the phalanx that had been absorbed could be returned to normal. Um, and I, I said that the biggest uh, loss or the, the biggest point of grieving in this book was Xavier's chair. And I meant that because at the end, uh, Doug has his own, sorry, Doug Locke has his own self-sacrificial moment where he jumps right into the signal uh, and you think that that kills him because it certainly does destroy the spire. Uh, but in fact, it doesn't for reasons that aren't entirely obvious. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, okay. I like that then. So then that's why your sidestep, like that's why you're willing to say his sacrifice at the end does not meet the, the true sacrifice that was Xavier's chair. Right. And I mean, that, that, that kind of gets explained away in the same way that like tears can heal people in movies. Like he, yeah, yeah. he like the, the phalanx kind of dissipates into the ground um, and the, the people themselves return to their normal European lives, assumedly. Um, and then Douglock kind of reforms and he says, well, I was I was able to do this. It's inferred because um, I found a way to bond with mutants, or or at least Warlock found a way to bond with Doug, or he has something to live for, and he says that towards Rain. So, I mean, it's the opportunity for that character of Doug Locke to continue, but if I had a criticism of that moment, other than it not feeling entirely earned... I kept having to flip the page back and forth because I thought that he did die. Like even after he reformed, I thought he died. <laughs> and I was like, what is even happening at the end of this comic? Um, yeah. So now that we're, we're discussing that I should have went back more because 
there was a lot of um, uncertainty in my mind when I finished that, uh, even even going back like the second time through a little bit, um, because I remember reading it and being like, oh, so he's going to survive. And then it was like, oh, he's dead. No, wait, is he alive? What's happening? There's a lot of is he alive uh, moments. Yeah, for sure. But um, it doesn't stop this from being a good chunk of Phalanx Covenant. Um, but I think it's definitely elevated by those moments with Forge and certainly the, the moments with the three former members of New Mutants. Yeah, that's the that's the really good part of this story in my eyes. And I, I really wish that it they would have just cut out the fat. Like that's a, that's a phrase that, um, that I've heard a lot, especially when it comes to podcasts, uh, being critiqued is, you know, there's a lot of fat in there that just needs to be cut out and you end up with a really good podcast. So, um, in my mind, I'm kind of reading this and like, there's a lot of fat in this. That if they would have cut it out, <laughs> it had been really good. And I'm also a little confused now because, well, more confused than I was, but they, this is a big X-Men event um, that ties all these different franchises together. And in the past, usually what ends up happening with this is it's more like uh, linear and that this issue goes direct into this issue and so on and so forth until the event is over. This one is broken out into three parts, which I thought was an interesting take. And I was actually kind of glad to get it that way. But then there's just so many connections that don't seem right that I'm wondering if because they split it off that way, there wasn't as much collaboration behind the scenes that maybe impacted some of these, what I would consider plot holes. Like the fact that the, the phalanx absorbed humans um, revert back to humans at the end of this, but in like you said, final sanction. And then what we see with harvest and generation next, it's not really what happens to them. No, Um, well, and, and certainly in the future, too, like um, uh, I, I mentioned this when we were kind of planning this episode, but uh, there is an issue of Garen Gillen's Uncanny X-Men run that features kind of a brief return of the Phalanx, or at least a member of the Phalanx who was experimented on by Mr. Sinister. And um, he that, that, that Phalanx, he spends quite a bit of time absorbing like a young girl, a cat, like a whole bunch of people to create a new Babel Spire, uh, ultimately to, to, to find out that there is no... Um, reception to his signal in space and he kills himself uh, but but in the process we don't see the return of any of those people those people are dead they're gone <laughs> so wow okay so maybe never mind i'm not gonna talk um house of x and powers of 10 any more than i already do <laughs> well and, and, and i'm i like i like yourself i'm reading house of x and powers of 10 as it releases and uh although they've mentioned the phalanx i'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around its presence in this book or how it even works i guess yeah that's probably a conversation to leave to when the series are actually <laughs> done right <laughs> yes for sure and, and i'm sitting here like reading this i'm kind of like trying to find clues as we're reading this but then as you're going from part to part to part and none of it actually seems to line up with each other i'm like i don't know that i can get any clues from this because they seem to not even know what's going on in this original story um so yeah um let's see and then with forge uh like you we were talking earlier this um red uh, raptor looking shepherd um I I would say Shinar, but I don't know if that's a, the appropriate way to say his name. I I, uh, I would say Shinar as well. Yeah. Okay. Then we it's unanimous. His name is Shinar. So Shinar um, has, like we mentioned earlier, taken Forge to try and cultivate these these eggs, 
and it, as a backup plan. And we get this stealth team uh, of X-Men or Excalibur and X-Force is showing up. And Nightcrawler is the one that goes in and talks to Forge, I believe. Um, he teleports in and he's talking to him. And, and Forge is massively struggling with the whole like giving in to his mutant ability that seems to want to um, give in to the phalanx, whereas his human side is more of like, no, 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 you know, you can't do this. And Nightcrawler gets there and he has this wonderful conversation with him to convince him to, um, to actually stop the pods or the eggs from hatching as opposed to uh, powering them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and it, sh- it should be mentioned that like Shinar knew that this would happen with Forge. Uh, he, he knew that his powers as the maker, or he even calls him a midwife at one point, um, w- would not be able to control himself. Uh, and in the dialogue we see, I say dialogue, the telepathic dialogue we see between uh, Charles Xavier and Forge, we, we kind of have these contrasting worldviews where... Um, Charles sees the phalanx as this uh, global, even a universal threat and just wants to stomp it out. But Forge sees them as a different form of life. And uh, more than that, a a form of life that can uh, evolve and embrace new forms of life (laughs) it's kind of hard to explain because this is a a being an alien species that can morph into different uh, objects or different weapons but i i guess he kind of sees the beauty in how they exist yeah he he sees their beauty in a way that xavier doesn't and in, in this particular instance as we're talking it just further hints to me that this worldview of xavier has shifted um for reasons that become more apparent later on. Yeah. Like, like like the way that you articulated that just kind of hit home with me and, and that particular change in Xavier's worldview. Yeah. And and it's funny because the, the telepathic conversations between them, I think are one of the best parts of this book. Um, my favorite panel in all of Phalanx Covenant is actually in an issue where um, they, they have that confluence of the minds. And Charles says, I never realized that the way you see things is purely amazing. And Forge dryly responds, yes, it makes Charles for an interesting time when I take a stroll through a crowded appliance store. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which back then might have been Sears. Um, it might anymore. have been, yeah. Or, or um, <laughs> oh gosh, what are the other awful ones? Um, like a, wall, a Walgreens, City. a Byway. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Cir- yeah. Circuit City, certainly, yeah. Yeah, Circuit City. Oh God, dude, that would have been really messed up for him. Um, he might have found it beautiful, though. Uh, he may have. If you put you know, if you put Forge in a Circuit City, I'm sure he could find enough objects to create a time machine or a spaceship, or he would find a way to make it work, right? I think so. I think so. Forge is brilliant. Um, and this, and you know, I think uh, interestingly enough, I feel like uh, Forge was very much um, a standout, like Banshee was uh, in Generation Next, like where you have this previous. Um, X-Man who was, has a lot of history in the X-Men universe, but isn't necessarily like the main guy or someone that most people think of, but, 
I think uh, I think Forge really stood out in this one. Um, any other comments and about, about life signs? signs? I guess I, I would agree that Forge really stuck out, but I think kind of in an inadvertent way almost. Like you you read this uh, chunk of Failing's Covenant, and you can tell that they're really trying to make Douglock the central character, the, the real standout character. But in this book, Douglock is like one part dog, one part warlock, and one part lazy exposition, right? So <laughs> he, his role in the story is to explain what the phalanx is and how it operates which is is fine like it's it's good that we have kind of uh, an understanding of where it came from and what it wants but we don't really get to see much in the way of character development with him whereas with forge you know you see this man not only grapple with his pursuit of his mutant abilities but also a distinct argument between is this a species worth saving or is this a species worth exterminating? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the whole, uh, do they kind of have a soul, right? I guess that would be where a lot of people would argue if, if they're worth saving or not, if they're trying to eradicate everything, do they have, you know, merit or value beyond, beyond, uh, just the machine. And, um, yeah. And, and I think it's also interesting that, uh, like you were saying, Douglock is clearly meant to be the the main focal point here, um, but Forge, you know, shines in a way that um, is different than Banshee. Banshee shown in a way that was like heroic. Oh, and he's whereas... ripped. He he's just he is just looking great. You know, <laughs> he's... Uh, he looks um, he looks like... better. He looks better than he has any reason to when he is clearly in his forties. <laughs> see that was the that's the time period you know i mean like cannonball is like super jacked now and if you go back and read like you know the young days of cannonball oh he he was lanky and skinny and yeah (laughs) yeah he's not gonna look like that no mm -mm. um but yeah i I love i loved forging this and um rain i like rain a lot in uh, most of the comics that i read so there wasn't anything like here that made me not like her but i wasn't really into the whole um i would push back on that just a little bit and not because rain is characterized poorly um but because there's three different books three different titles that are taking place over this chunk of phalanx covenant and in the first one her wolf transformation and herself she looks fantastic uh but with the following two issues there's different artists and it is so striking it is it's weird almost how she changes in appearance or at least i found it really weird that's a good point i visually speaking yes um i that's the thing that i hate it's kind of like with beast where depending on who's drawing beast he may look more beastly or or not and um it bugs me man, that's just the thing with artists, right? Especially when you have a big event like this and it's not done by the same artist. Um, it just makes those transition issues more, or those transition moments or those other issues more jarring. Uh, it stands out way more. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the only other point that I would make is, um, and you got me thinking about this because uh, we're, we're talking about this species and its merits for life. And uh, they do kind of delve into the fact that um, it is uh, not only evolving, but it's evolving outside of the scope of uh, clearly Stephen Lang's intentions. Um, and I made the mistake of reading Final Sanction first <laughs> and then going back and reading the rest of it. Uh, and if you do that, you get like a really 
really dry, uh, very um, we're the bad guys and this is our intentions kind of approach to the phalanx. Um, but uh, life science does a really good job showing how the phalanx is not only growing, but growing past any measure of control and evolving into its own kind of neo-species. Um, and it really does enhance Final Sanction, which follows it up. Um, but having read Final Sanction first, I didn't get any of that. <laughs> I think it's amazing that that happened. Um, I, I, like, I really do. I think that's amazing uh, that, that that happened. And... Um, I do like the distinction made here, right? Like where we kind of were talking earlier, I think it was uh, more so you, that um, the original phalanx species is very different from this particular version that we're getting. And it's like a, it's like a new breed of it um, because it's been manipulated and merged with humans in a way that it wasn't necessarily intended or wouldn't have naturally because they are trying to develop these techno organic sentinels to attack mutants and you know push humanity to the the forefront right and it's and, it's funny because uh, like and they don't do a good job explaining it in final sanction either but the original intention outside of uh, having a new version of sentinel using uh warlocks's uh technarch genealogy i guess you could say uh was to apply that against the mutants and eradicate the mutants of the the earth until the phalanx realized that it could absorb humans much more easily and that's how much of a slippery slope that is which i think is a really great lead into final sanction because stephen lang is finally having those realizations that oh my god um i might have doomed humanity by agreeing to this plan yeah yeah, he he might have. Um, so I guess with that, we will go right into Final Sanctions, right? Um, so in Final Sanction, um, Cyclops and Jean are res- returning to Muir Island after having talked to Banshee um, from uh, Generation Next, the, that storyline. They are dying to let Xavier know what they found out in the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix uh, miniseries about the legacy virus. When they get there, Muir Island is like, not what it was. At least the research facility of Moira McTaggart is completely infected by the phalanx and they start to battle and um, Wolverine shows up and Cable. Uh, I guess Xavier has put in, uh, you know, telepathic calls to both of them to bring them there. Um, and they team up and so the whole idea is like they're wanting to go in and I think it was what to find the Cerebro that's inside of the Moira's research facility. Yeah, the, the, the intention is to get information on all mutants and uh, use that, weaponize it. And uh, I guess at one point they're also trying to assimilate Psylocke. Um, it, it's never really well explained like why they're trying to take advantage of her psionic powers but um the the x-men have been captured uh (laughs) and and the people that are featured in this book are cable wolverine gene gray and cyclops who have all kind of been away from the x-men for a period of time 
Yeah, so they're, they're not even... Uh, yeah, that's an excellent point as well. Cyclops and Jean have been gone. Wolverine left after the whole incident with Magneto and Fatal Attractions. And Cable, I think he'd kind of fallen out with X-Force then too, right? Uh, well, he got his own solo series, so... <laughs> Yeah. So he was like, deuces, I'm out. I got my own, my own income now. Um, yeah. And so these are, you know, a group of four that uh, are, um, not necessarily as affiliated with the teams as they were before. And I do like the way they bring Cyclops and Jean into this more so than the way they bring Wolverine and Cable into it. Well, uh, it Wolverine, seemed... he just parachutes in. <laughs> it's like, he's like, hey, I, I don't know who dropped me out of a plane, but I am parachuting into this book. <laughs> <laughs> he went, he's, he's very Rambo-esque in this one. Um, and then, well, so is Cable. Actually, they both are in different ways, but... Yeah, so like you said, the X-Men have been captured and the Phalanx, Stephen Lang specifically, is trying to manipulate Psylocke to, not necessarily manipulate, but to get Psylocke on his side. So I think what we're supposed to infer from this, maybe, just maybe, I'm not entirely sure because it's not very clear, is that because Psylocke is a telepath, he's able to have a conversation with her um outside of what the phalanx might be able to, to learn. Um, so they can like go into this, not necessarily the astral plane, but maybe, um, and it be away from the collective mind of the phalanx. And he's able to block that out so that they can't see what's going on. And I will say, even though it was just a, an attack at the base, I really liked the first issue more than I liked the second one. Uh, Yeah. Um, I liked the the banter and stuff that was going on between the four of them, um, the way in which they strategized. It was nice to see how that happened and how that played out. And then the astral plane battle with um, Gene and Cable teaming up against the Phalanx at Muir Island's research facility was beautiful. Well, you say set strategized, but in, in a lot of instances, it's just Cable pulling out uh, a gun the size of him <laughs> and, and just blowing the place up. But um, I, I guess what, what's really interesting, because I, I am a big fan of... Um, not only um, the adventures of, of Cyclops and, and Jean Grey, um, but also your your coverage of that as well was was really great too. Um, and it, it was really interesting to have those moments where uh, they have this shared uh, momentary memory between Jean Grey and Cable because they're both telepaths of uh, events that happen way in the future. Uh, and Cable starts to have that re- relevation that read his um, adoptive mom uh, in the apocalypse future is actually Jean Grey. Yeah, it's I thought it was a phenomenal way to intricate or to it sorry. I thought it was a phenomenal way to show that or to start building that or revealing that to cable because I mean this for Gene and Cyclops, this has just happened. Like, I mean, this is very recent for them and for the reader, um, based on release timing. So are we going to get that reveal? Like as you're reading that in adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, you were left wondering when or if they will tell cable that they raised him in the future. And so it's, it's great to actually see them start to wrestle with that as soon as they come back, because 
I mean, they could have dragged it out, right? They well, and to, to be fair, they do drag it out because, uh, like, he, he doesn't <laughs> actually have that uh, face-to-face moment with his dad until they're defending um, the, the Xavier Mansion it, much, much later, right? So, like, he, he holds on to this, like, knowledge that uh, Jean Grey may actually be read for some time before they have, like, an honest moment as, like, parent and child. Okay, valid. Um, very valid there. I guess what I was more so getting at is we could have had multiple issues of Cyclops and Jean being in, in part with the X-Men away from Cable and not having to see them wrestle with it in front of him or with him, um, not necessarily revealing it. So, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It is quite a while before he finds out for sure. Um, and I, it, it, oh, sorry, not to cut you off, but um, no. well, one, one thing that I thought was really awesome, actually, was uh, when Wolverine sees Cyclops, he makes a crack about him looking like he, it's been a decade, and he, he's, he's like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, he's, and I think even Gene makes some comment like, oh, he's able to, he's not a telepath, but he's able to read us better than, you know, most telepaths can. Um and yeah, it, like Wolverine's able to pick up on it, right? Like I, he's got this sixth sense. Like they've they've aged in this time this this time that they've been away. So he's he's probably like, what the what the crap happened to you guys? Um, but yeah, like you were talking earlier, the the dynamics of the Cable and Gene relationship as they're battling on the astral plane and how it's distracting Cable. So Gene knows what Cable is actually capable of to some extent, and she knows that the two of them should be able to handle the phalanx as a distraction while Wolverine and Cyclops infiltrated and destroy the um, Moira's research so that the phalanx can't use it against uh, humans and mutants. And Cable keeps getting distracted because of the shared uh, memories that you were talking about. And I love the way that that happens because Gene is like, crap, I got to find a way to explain that while fighting the phalanx and not revealing myself to Cable any more than I already am. Um, And I thought it was, it was ways in which it would make sense. Like, hey, we're sharing our minds uh, telepathically right now. So it would make sense that I would be able to tune into something that you're remembering or whatever. Um but yeah, that whole stuff is beautiful. I'm a, I'm a, for anyone who's listened to the show for long enough, they know that I used to absolutely love the Cuberts. I still love the Cuberts. Um, and I think Adam does a fantastic job with that whole astral plane battle. Mm-hmm. I guess the only problem that I would have in this instance is um, it looks like Logan's head is about to take flight in most of the panels <laughs> because his hair, uh, it comes off like a wing almost. So. The funny thing is that you said that because I have on my iPad a picture of that. And as I was saying these these very praising words about Adam Kubert, I was thinking in my head, except for the way he draws Wolverine. Literally, (laughs) like that was going through my head. I'm like, that's the only one. Like, that's it. Like, I like the way he draws everything else. Um. <laughs> but, but I will say that throughout this uh, first book, at the very least, uh, with the exception of the times he's lamenting the loss of his adamantium, which seems to need to happen in every single goddamn issue that he has bone claws, um, <laughs> he, he has a lot of great cracks. Like he calls the phalanx spaghetti face. Like there's plenty of bubs here and there. Like you, you get the sense that Larry is really trying to tap into like the spirit of the character in spite of the events that are kind of. T- 
taking place. Um, and it's really fun. I guess the, the only problem I have from like a characterization standpoint is Cable is just a, a wang throughout all of the, <laughs> throughout the, the, this whole two-parter. Cable is just unlikable. And uh, like I said, his solution in a lot of cases is to just pull out a big gun and give a lot of crap to Gene and Cyclops. And knowing that they are his parents, like I'm sure there are moments where he just like they just wanted to shake him, you know? Oh yeah, they wanted to put him in timeout, spank his butt, all that stuff. Like the stuff they got to do in the future, they're like, man, I wish we would have done that a little bit more than uh, than we did. And I, what I thought was funny it was the way in which he handled the fight with the phalanx um, after the astral plane. So like he's like, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And she's like, yes, you can, yes, you can, yes, you can. And then he just like bails mentally, just like bails the scenario. He's like, I'm out. Yeah. And then Gene's <laughs> like, What are you doing? Like I need you. Like you can't run, or they're gonna kill Cyclops and Wolverine. And then Cable's like, I'm not running. I'm just sick of fighting in the astral plane. And then pulls up his big old gun and just starts shooting the the building. I'm like. How's how's that gonna help? Like, what are you what are you getting at here, man? Um, yeah, and, but, and, but yes, and, and I do I do want to reiterate what you were saying about the the pencil because uh, the Kubert work is just phenomenal, and there are some like uh, two page spreads that are just spectacular. There's one in particular where Wolverine is tearing apart this female phalanx, and and her chunks of head are just like wrapping around him like tendrils and it looks fantastic and then you go into the second part of this uh chunk of the phalanx covenant and it's actually uh penciled by a completely different person steve uh is it scross we'll go with that because i really don't know how to say it this is what i hate like i hate referencing pencilers and inkers all the time because i don't know how to pronounce their freaking last names and i feel terrible yeah but i, I guess the, the, <laughs> the bigger thing is that like the the coloration and the art style itself is just so different from what it was in the previous issue and it really caught me off guard there's almost more of a cartoon element to the second part of final sanction and i don't think it necessarily helps how heavy um the dialogue itself is and it is a dialogue heavy issue if they're ever was one yes this is the like epitome of um exposition like this is what we're doing and why the whole time it felt like um especially with stephen lang stuff and um the phalanx so yeah so cable and gene and cyclops and wolverine are in route to where the x-men are uh being held captive and they uh um, which was uh was that um it was it was a mountaintop, wasn't it? Was it? Uh, it was it a mountain in Tibet, maybe. Yeah, um, and <laughs> I, I guess that was the hardest part of the book for me to read, to be honest, because they spend a lot of time justifying uh, trying to climb this uh, lateral edge, uh, this this uh, straight up um, approach, uh, and they're just using their hands. They're not using any of their mutant abilities, and they try to justify using their mutant abilities in one instance as, oh, well, if, if Jean can just use a, a telepathic burst, like a single moment, she can force Cable up this ledge. Uh, and then about a minute later, they throw that out and everyone just starts busting out their abilities. And I'm like, why did we even create that <laughs> pretense? Like, why not just go in guns blazing if this is what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> because they had to fill 37 pages or whatever <laughs> they, they, it was. They had to fill a, a, a <laughs> issue and a half worth of comic. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly, it's like, it, and this I think was the the reason that, Generation Next stood out so much better than the rest because there there didn't really feel like any filler 
in the generation next uh, part of the phalanx covenant whereas in the second and third parts it felt like it should have been half of what it was because there was so much of it uh, um and yeah and and i know this was only two issues so we're by nature going to talk about this one less than we did the others but also just from a what I have to say about it perspective. Um, there's just less in here. It's more frustrating. Like I was very annoyed with the cable and Wolverine relationship in this. I felt like it was like, it felt like a rivalry in the first one in the Wolverine issue, but in the cable issue, it just felt like way overdone. Um, well, and I think part of it too, is that there's a moment when they're, they're climbing this approach and, uh, it like, it's justified as like, um, uh, Stephen Lang knows that they're going up that side. Cameron Hodge is a part of the phalanx because, of course, Cameron Hodge is a part of the phalanx. Uh, and uh, they say, don't worry about monitoring that side. There's no way that people can go up that side. It's impossible. So they start going up, and naturally there's a moment where Cable almost falls. And Gene, being his... Um, mother clone sort of not so much actual mother but kind of yes mother because they spent uh, 12 years in the future raising him uh, she has that's the that's the x-men way of saying stepmother yeah she <laughs> she has this look of of such concern that it changes logan's heart and he looks at him and he says i don't like you but because you're important to gene gray and she dictates everything in my life i am <laughs> I, I am going to clean the slate with you and we are good from now on <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the resolution to this rivalry between Cable and Wolverine. And, and I'm like, what? Okay. I mean, um, it was very, yeah, I, I, I was honestly waiting to hear you talk about it because I knew, like, just for anybody that reads that, how ridiculous that whole scenario was. Like, I was just waiting for that to come up because it's just absurd. Like, the whole idea or premise behind that being, like, Wolverine's motivation for ending this feud so I, I guess if she were friends or started to like Sabretooth, he would not hate Sabretooth? Well, by the same logic, yes. Um, but I guess it, it makes even less sense to me because, like, uh, especially at this time in the 90s, like, these were big guys with big guns who just did big guy things. And um, it just didn't seem in character for Cable or Logan to bury the hatchet the way that it took place. Uh, and this is, like, the A plot. The B plot in the background is um, uh, Stephen Lang trying to covertly um, upend the f- progress of the phalanx by partitioning Psylocke's uh, mind, I guess. Uh, so turning her into kind of a technarchy version of herself while also uh, having kind of a back door so she can become a normal X-Man again with a weird trigger point. Um, the weirdest of all trigger points. Yes, and and this is all done so that Cameron Hodge, who is much more in line with the actual motivation of the phalanx, um, isn't aware of, of what's taking place. And I think the the weakest point of this comic book isn't even like the Stephen Lang Psylocke stuff as poorly as it's explained. It's like it's the stuff with the phalanx members who we never actually get to know or meet or understand and uh, Cameron Hodge. Hmm, Interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but I like that. Um, There's like, 
yeah, there's a lot of time spent on climbing up a mountain as opposed to fleshing out some of the additional phalanx members that are inside of this that could have provided a little bit of depth to what was going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they have distinct word bubbles and they have like somewhat distinct personalities, although they're all phalanx and they have somewhat distinct designs. Like there's, there's a female one, there's quite a large one. And like I said, like you can tell which one is talking based on what's going on in the panel, but we don't know who these people are or these former people are. Um, are they friends of humanity? Are they people who have since been absorbed? Like, like is this Cameron Hodge like an imprint of Cameron Hodge's personality left over from the end of extinction agenda or is it actually Cameron Hodge none of it's relevant because they all die but <laughs> but 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 it just seems kind of like filler like just more space and um for a long time it's just an enemy that can't be killed until they can be killed really easily you know yeah yeah it, it is just uh... I hate to keep saying it, but it is to your point, just excessive filler in here. And, um, and I really do feel like there's a lot of other things they could have downplayed, uh, with the infiltration of the facility and, and things like that, that would have been able to buy the time needed to kind of expand why it was important that those people existed or who they might've been to give some kind of like empathy or, um, hatred even to who they were and what they were doing as opposed to just like random characters that are just added. And, um, yeah, so he has this, this trigger planted in Psylocke. Stephen Lang implants this trigger in Psylocke to activate, uh, to bring back her humanity, so to speak, when she, um, fights cable so when cable shows up and they're like hey you gotta fight cable and cyclops and gene she triggers back to normal but then beforehand she goes to the the rest of the phalanx and she says that uh stephen lankin's hiding something so yeah. <laughs> I, he clearly didn't intend that but but even uh, uh the female phalanx member had already kind of pointed that out because there's a moment where their their minds kind of join and she can sense that something is being concealed so like everyone in the phalanx is on edge about Stephen Lang, but they don't see this coming and you can see it coming because there's even a moment where uh, Cameron Hodge suggests killing Bishop because he can absorb energy and he's probably the biggest threat. And of course the one X-Men that gets released as soon as Wolverine gets in there is Bishop. And all he needs is a little pinprick sized hole to not only escape, but basically blow up the phalanx. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he was the biggest threat to the phalanx, right? His energy absorption absorption power. And, like, I don't understand how, like, okay. So the phalanx in the previous two ones didn't seem stupid. <laughs> this one, they just seemed stupid. Like, wow. That's that's, like, that's I, quite the damnation of the phalanx. <laughs> I don't mean it uh, as, as terrible as it sounds. I actually kind of do mean it as terrible as it sounds. But they kamikaze a plane in there. And they all have ejected before that, the uh, gene in them. To be, to be fair, like, also doesn't make a ton of sense. Like the, the rationale is that because there isn't any sonar or radar systems in the plane, the phalanx won't be able to see them coming. But the phalanx has eyes and the phalanx, the phalanx can adapt to anything that's mechanical in nature, regardless of whether there's high technology in it. So e- even some of the rudimentary elements of how this plot kind of goes down, it's kind of like... Uh, okay. Okay. So really what we see in this one is that the, 
the X-Men involved in this are also stupid and nothing makes any sense. Okay. Right. But, but I guess the, the bigger thing that isn't terribly well explained um, is that Stephen Lang wanted Cameron Hodge to be cornered because he knew that Cameron Hodge would drain the power of the phalanx across all of the hives. Cause apparently there's hives all over the earth and we've only just seen, you know, harvest in one remote lo- location and then what's happening in life science. But apparently phalanx are everywhere else for some reason. Um, and he drains all of their power to himself because he's Cameron Hodge. Uh, and that essentially wipes the, the earth slate of phalanx clean with the exception of this last group that are in this location with all of the X-Men. So it's the perfect setup for a clean conclusion. I'm really glad that you just explained that because honestly, I had forgotten how this one resolved. I just remembered all of them going away. (laughs) (laughs) Like I just remember reading this one and being like, all right, I'm glad it's over and not remembering exactly the, the rationale behind how it played out. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for that. It, it just well, and and I hate to to ruin a good moment, but um, it kind of actually does end with an up ending of that rationale. So you know how in the in life signs we were talking about how they create a babble spire, and the intention of that babble spire was to send a signal into space uh, so that um, the true phalanx or whatever was out there, whether it was Vegas uh, and the Technarch uh, or the actual phalanx, could come to Earth and uh, take it over, take over the galaxy. Um, there's a moment on the final page that just doesn't make any sense given the fact that the Babel Spire was destroyed and that signal was uh, reversed or removed. Um, there's a there's a, a page that says, on the other side of the galaxy, and you see this uh, techno-organic being that says, there is an emptiness, a void where there once was techno-organic sentience. Ah, our footholds on the outer rim, the yellow sun system with the nine planets. It seems more aggressive tactics are called uh, something more to the point. Um, so the assertion is that all the phalanx are gone from Earth at the end of Final Sanction, and someone on the other side of the galaxy notices that. But if that someone on the other side of the galaxy notices a lack of techno-organic life, why would a signal need to be sent in the first place? Oh my god, dude. Why, why do you keep pointing out plot holes? <laughs> <laughs> you are really, really impacting the rating I'm going to get this... this. <laughs> Like, holy crap. Yeah, that's a that's a very valid point that I cannot dispute and I cannot come up with a rational explanation other than um, the off-breed um, phalanx on Earth have no idea necessarily how things work out in the true phalanx world. And so they were building the spire thinking they didn't know that they existed when in fact they did know they existed and the phalanx on Earth are just stupid. <laughs> like, like... Um, and this 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 is Mount Everest, by the way, because they 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 do uh, make direct reference to reference to that at the end when the phalanx are all kind of tumbling to their death. But but again, this is another instance where like all the phalanx die. Um, it's apparent that no humans survive the experience. Um, I don't know. It's just like it's it's weird how like the, it, it seems so contained each part of the phalanx covenant and. Um, when you kind of match them up next to each other, the logic just doesn't even make sense. It really doesn't. And like, 
we had originally toyed with the idea of splitting this into three different um, episodes and doing so probably would have made us feel better about them because we might have spaced them out a little more and not realize these things. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that we didn't so that we could kind of nitpick it, not necessarily nitpick, but point out these major flaws. And I, I find it funny now that we're talking about this and how all the phalanx just kind of disappear at the end because it's making me think about the end of the Avengers movie when they all just kind of are gone. Um, when the spire goes out and then, um, then you have this post credits with fine, I'll do it myself moment with this being across the universe. Yeah, it's very that I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the only other point that I would kind of mention with final sanction is another thing that doesn't make sense is at one point, um, the phalanx tries to get cable to join them and it's already been established that the phalanx cannot merge with mutant kind with the exception of perhaps Doug Locke, um, and the, the rationale is that Cable already has this techno-organic, like, transmode virus in his arm, but that isn't Technarch, and it's not Phalanx. That's like the apocalypse variant of the techno-organic virus. So, you know what? None of it really makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we, before we say so many things that we just completely butcher what rating we're going to give this, um, do you have any final thoughts before we get into ratings? I would say that it it works a lot better if read sequentially. <laughs> I will get I will give it that credit. Uh, final sanction is a much better read if you've already read Generation Next and Life Signs. But um, on their own, I think each of the three chunks has their own issues. Um, I, the issue with Generation Next is that it. It doesn't really care about what's happening with the phalanx. It's much more concerned about setting up Generation X, the 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 upcoming title. Um, and then we've already pointed out with Life Signs, you have a whole group of people who are kind of superfluous. And in, in Final Sanction, I had to read it like three times to actually understand what was <laughs> happening. So <laughs> definitely middling in terms of quality, but there's some really good pieces as part of this whole event, I would say. Yes, as a whole, there are some very standout pieces. Um, it's just I, the event needed to be smaller. Like that was that's my personal take on it. Um, so okay, so we'll get into ratings now. Um, so for those who or this is the first time that you've listened, ratings go like this: one to three is banned, four to seven is borrow, and eight to ten is buy. Um, so borrow basically being like find a way to read it because it's important and you should read it, but um, not necessarily something that you need to own. So I'm kind of torn on how to rate this. Do we rate it individually by the three parts or total? Um, well, yeah, I, I think it would make sense to look at this in terms of its three parts, because you can tell like it was designed around the introduction of this new series. Uh, and because this is an event comic and it is the early nineties, every other book on the line had to be a part of it too. <laughs> um, of course. so I, I think it makes more sense to look at this in terms of those three chunks. Okay. So for generation, okay, let's go backwards. Uh, so for final sanction, how would you rate it? Ooh. Um, if I was being generous, I would say like a four or a five. Okay. I like that. Uh, I was leaning towards, um, probably a 4.5. So I think that works. Let's, let's split the difference. (laughs) Yeah. We'll split the difference. And then, uh, for life signs, um, I would say it's like a solid seven. Okay. I was leaning at a six on that one. So we'll go our joint efforts, (laughs) 6.5. 
<laughs> and then uh, generation next, I'll lead this one. Um, this one for me is an easy eight. Um, I think it is uh, absolutely the best in the three. I really, really loved reading it. Um, I think there are some great moments in it and I think, uh, I own them. So I think you should own them too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, as you know, as part of preparing for this podcast, I went out and I got all the floppies, which was a, a financial endeavor if there ever was one, but, <laughs> but, um, I'm really glad that I own all of generation next because it really is like the, a great entry point for generation X, uh, which is a series that I also love. Um, and I would say that, yeah, I would give this probably a nine because the art is spectacular the colors are just totally popping out of the page um and i would say that the the art and uh the writing kind of cohesively go together really well and the dialogue is just fantastic throughout the only thing that kind of stops generation next from being better is the fact that it's saddled with the baggage of the phalanx I think that's probably what weighed it down for me, knowing that um, it has this phalanx story in it that doesn't actually matter. Do anything <laughs> for the, yeah, for the phalanx. Um, so I think almost if it would have just been a completely different type of villain set, I probably would have been um, even higher up on it. <clears throat> so, okay, um, that's going to do it for our discussion on the phalanx covenant. Up next week, we have uh, another X-Men episode because that's the way things shook out. Um, We're going to be covering um, X-Men 38, X-Factor 108, Uncanny X-Men 319, um, and X-Men 39 and X-Factor 109. And um, for a full list of upcoming episodes, you can go to our website, marvelmythos.com backslash upcoming. And if you want to reach out to us to talk the Phalanx Covenant or anything else that we've got going on, feel free to hit me up on Instagram and on Twitter at marvel underscore mythos. 